0: I'm Ben
1: Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Ben Horton. Hello.
0: Agnes Frimston. Hello. How are you?
1: I have a temperature. <laughs> How
0: are you? I am. I'm well. I'm. I can't complain. It's a sunny day again. As I sit at my desk again, everything's just all a bit busy, isn't it?
1: It really is. Yes. But have you read or watched something this week that you feel like you should share or oh, have enjoyed? It's a good one. It's tricky. What have we been watching?
0: We did you
1: watch Quiz? Phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: yes, genuinely.
0: So this is about Masterminds. No. Who wants Master- to be a millionaire?
1: All right, granddad. You're technically so, younger than me, mastermind. Have you been reading?
0: Have I been reading? I mean, I've been reading Twitter. It's pretty tricky, isn't it? I don't know. I have lots of books and I have lots of good intentions. And uh, the Chatham House Book Club is reading Circe by Madeleine Miller this month. And I've got it and I'm ready to go. And I, for some reason, I just find myself not able to focus and just sit down and say, no,
1: I'm going to read now. And I'm not going to have any technology near me. It's so tricky because you have all these people saying, this is the time that you should start your business or write your novel. No, <laughs> but I will regret not reading. Yeah. But I just can't concentrate. I cannot sit down and actually concentrate on a book at the moment. I think a lot of people are having this problem. Mm. It feels too stressful. Okay, Cersei. great. What
0: else is on your list? Well, we have a couple of things. We've got Isabel Hardman's Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. It's a great book. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got a bit of Middle England by Jonathan Coe, which apparently is a lighthearted take on post-Brexit UK society.
1: So um, my partner loved that. I couldn't quite get into it, but no? he, he, he recommends. so. Super yeah.
0: gendered, that sounds. Okay.
1: Um, I've really loved Greg Jenner's book on celebrity yes hark back to last week but honestly it's an absolute cracker and if you don't fancy reading he reads the audible version it's really great i'd really recommend it
0: can you give us the top celebrity that you hadn't heard of
1: it's difficult because not to sound gushing but he's written it so cleverly that they sort of all merge into Um. themes in that sense but it's just really engaging and this is a very bad thing to say i might get sacked in fact for saying that (laughs) but Sometimes I find it difficult to read nonfiction books because they're quite dry, oh. even when I'm very, very interested in the topic. But he writes really engagingly. <laughs> my big shame, though, is the novel that I'm still trying to read, Ben.
0: Oh, really? So Go on.
1: I did my Master's in Victorian Literature. Mm-hmm. I've never read Middlemarch.
0: Never? You've never read nope, Middlemarch?
1: No. no, I've taken it on every holiday I've been on for 10 years. I've never read it. And now I feel it's the time.
0: Oh gosh, it's your it's your albatross. Is that the right metaphor? I, mean, I, hope, I'm it's, not sure. I hope it's worth it, Pretty and
1: I love it. a long book. So yeah. Oh but wow, no. George Eliot. Yes. I mean, there's,
0: there are some there are some other George Eliots that are also worth reading. Go on
1: top, top George Eliot.
0: Probably Daniel Deronda.
1: Oh That's my god fun, yes yeah. it's the, it's the only great one it's phenomenal i love it but yeah. who did you speak to this week
0: so on to the pod so this week i spoke to sandra smiths who is a program manager with our asia pacific program and we had a conversation about myanmar and what's been going on there politically and and in terms of the kind of legal situation vis-a-vis the uh, rohingya refugees obviously this majority muslim ethnic group that a few years ago, uh, was forced out of the country basically by crackdowns from the army and have been refugees in Bangladesh uh, ever since. And it was huge news, I'm sure everyone remembers, but when it was kicking off in 2017. But the problem has not been resolved, right? We're now three years later and the people who were responsible for the atrocities have not been brought to justice. They've not. There's been no accountability at all for what happened and a lot of these people are still stateless living in in Bangladesh so we had a conversation basically about the legal situation around that and attempts to bring people to justice for the crimes that occurred but we were also looking back to a previous case where there were some similarities which was in Cambodia around the Khmer Rouge which was a communist regime that carried out many atrocities in the nineteen seventies.
1: That sounds really interesting mm-hmm. because yeah, they've massively dropped off the radar, they? Huge news, but not gone. It's away. one
0: of those classic cases of the news cycle just leaving behind a story when it has not been resolved. And it's it's just kind of terrifying that obviously the, the eyes of the world are on this moment for a few weeks and then people move on to the next disaster.
1: Okay. Which is also the point of us because we continue to flag up things that people have forgotten. So, who did you speak to, Agnes? So I spoke to Jordan Lim, who is a senior press officer at Chatham House and responsible for getting out our content and messages about how our government in the UK, but also other governments have dealt with messaging around coronavirus and who's done it well and who's done it badly. And yeah, whether or not you can actually do it well.
0: I can't imagine. I um, mean, it's it's one of those situations where everyone is being criticised for how they're doing things, isn't it? Not just the politicians, the civil servants, the media as well. Everyone is kind of in this circle of blame already.
1: Um, true, but equally, it feels quite unprecedented in that you have... The government responding to a Twitter thread and uh, daily briefings. This is, you know, slightly new territory. And who the audience is for that, and whether it's worth doing. But yeah, really interesting. So Amazing. should we have a listen?
0: Yeah, let's have a listen.
1: So I am here with Jordan Lim, who is the senior press office in the Chatham House comms department and more broadly running how we put out our messages generally thank you so much jordan hello
2: hi agnes Ah. nice to
1: chat so we thought it might be quite interesting to have a chat about the way that governments are dealing with media briefings around coronavirus so first question for you as a media expert do you think the daily briefing is a success a good thing a bad thing
2: Look, I think it's an absolutely necessary thing. It's definitely flawed, but I don't think that any government anywhere in the world probably is is absolutely nailing it. It's definitely not a bad thing because it's absolutely crucial right now. So by early March, what we were seeing was the anonymous press briefings, if you can remem- remember back. I know that, that feels like an absolute lifetime ago now. So this is before the age of the daily press briefings when we were seeing newspaper reports that were sort of attributed to senior government sources Um, often communicating quite major things, such as that story about over 70s possibly being, you know, isolating. So then by about mid-March, we started seeing these press briefings. I think they're absolutely necessary because we need to be hearing from the government every single day. Is there room to improve? Yes.
1: Who do you think they're for? That is an excellent question.
2: I mean, now... I know at the beginning, I think a lot of regular people were tuning in. Nowadays, I would love to see what the viewership numbers are. I wouldn't be surprised if they've declined because I think they're getting less and less accessible to normal people. And they're really for political journalists and now luckily health journalists as well. So that's another difference we've seen at the beginning. It was only the press journalists who were invited. In what way do you think they're becoming less accessible? I think that we're just... The questions aren't being answered, which is increasingly frustrating people.
1: Because sometimes it can feel a bit like they are sort of briefing the lobby, except we're all at home and lots and lots of people are still watching these briefings. So is it for the general public, do you think? Or is it there to reassure the general public whilst also being there actually for journalists' as content?
2: I think it's, I mean, it's obviously intended to reassure the general public. I think that that's quite reassuring, having an apolitical um, sort of civil service expert standing there next to the minister or the prime minister. But I would agree that increasingly it's sort of more of a lobby exercise than, than anything else.
1: Do you think it matters who is hosting them?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've seen, obviously, it's quite a unique situation in the UK because the Prime Minister's been ill himself and out of action. But it seems as though they've been choosing ministers based on either what the topic of the day is, so whether there's an announcement on education or support for businesses. But some of the ministers, I think most of the general population would not be familiar with. So having someone standing up there representing the government who they might not recognise or know, I don't think that is a particularly effective strategy.
1: But do you think, for example, it matters more if it's the Health Secretary, Hancock versus Rob, or when the Treasury announced their updates to sort of business payments or, you know, support for um, freelancers? Mm-hmm. Did it matter who was like delivering that message?
2: Yeah, I think that those messages should be delivered by the ministers who are in charge of those areas. So I think it is important to hear from the Minister for Health on testing and it's important to hear from the Chancellor on the economic measures, absolutely.
1: Because sometimes it feels a bit like it's just sort of feeding the Twitter media bubble. But on that note, the government last week, for the first time, I think, issued a rebuttal to a Twitter thread by NFT and Times journalist. Why do you think they did that?
2: That was very unusual. I mean, it's not unusual to issue rebuttals at all. But the fact is that it was, uh, I think, over 2,000 words of rebuttal that was posted the next day. I think they did that because, I mean, A, they, they would have obviously been quite angry about the article. and um, This was in response to a Sunday Times article that's quite critical of the government's response. Was it effective? I don't think so, because it means that then journalists were just talking about this very unusual, very defensive rebuttal rather than moving on, on to the next story.
1: I would say, just to interrupt briefly, journalists love talking about journalism. Just but non-stop. I, the fact that it got, the government took time to point by point rebut that twitter thread and then also the sunday times article some of which was really useful you know for example the claim that we had sent quite a lot of our pp to china you know they could then rebut saying yes we did but then china sent loads back which we have not you know announced that's helpful but it does feel like a very new way of dealing with the press
2: It is. And we've seen that again, I think it was just today, there was another rebuttal posted by Public Health England in a similar style. So it will be interesting to see if this is sort of the new way forward. And I mean, I agree, sometimes it's absolutely necessary. And it's important to make sure that accurate information is out there, and to dispel any inaccuracies. But other times, and I mean, in this case, you'd really have to question how effective that strategy was. Because
1: it does feel like a sign of insecurity. But equally, you could argue that the most important thing at the moment is sort of public mood and keeping that up. So do you think it's it shows insecurity or do you think it's actually dealing with questions as they come up in a new way that we haven't dealt with before?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, this is the first time, I mean, sh- surely the biggest global crisis has hit in the age of social media. So it does mean that government press officers and ministerial officers will be dealing with the press in a different way. So, you know, maybe this is a new tactic that they're trying out. I, th- I mean, yeah, I do think it's important to correct inaccuracies, but I think they probably just went a bit too far with that one. and it, it just it ended up looking a bit defensive and a bit petty in some instances.
1: I mean, do you think that social media has sort of eroded deference in a crisis in this sort of scenario?
2: I mean, I think so. The fact that we can see ministers sitting in their living room while they're being um, interviewed has certainly changed things. But in other ways, social media has been really useful. I mean, the fact that I can follow, you know, world leading epidemiologists on Twitter and hear directly, you know, from them what they're thinking, that's the first time that that's probably happened. I don't think that would have been the case even during SARS. There are definitely some benefits to having Twitter.
1: That's often the argument about Twitter is like arguments are getting more heated and controversial because we're hearing more views <laughs> uh, suddenly mm-hmm. we're how people feel about stuff. How do you feel like other governments have- dealing with communicating this message to their press or people?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's such a mixed bag. There are definitely some standouts of governments who are either doing very badly or quite well. Obviously, I mean, one of the first that springs to mind is is the United States. The President Trump, their daily press conferences sort of just descended even further than you could possibly imagine with attacks on journalists. And I think this must be unprecedented now, Some broadcasters are just not sending reporters anymore to cover these. I mean, it's a really interesting tactic and I know that it's been quite heavily debated whether or not that's the right thing to do. On the other hand, other governments have managed this quite well, but where they have, I think it's really down to individual leaders who are just amazing communicators. So if you look at The two examples, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. She has just been fantastic. The fact that she gets on Facebook Live and she speaks directly to the nation following her official press conference. I think that that's really quite impressive and has been received really well. And she can just speak clearly to people and explain, you know, why the government are making certain moves, why it's important in a really human and empathetic manner. So I think she's done a brilliant job. And I did see a brief clip recently of Angela Merkel as well yeah again I, explaining I, a really complicated topic and a topic that can be quite difficult to explain to people and she just distilled this information so clearly in a way that was so impressive so there are certainly some governments that are doing well, but I think it's really down to their individual um leadership styles
1: but again, the German press is very different to lots of other presses it's it's very like non-critical and uh, by and large quite supportive of the government but do you think that's down to sort of trust and authenticity
2: around individual leaders? Yeah, I mean the authenticity is such an important part of it. I think I mean you can't buy that, can you? And you can't fake it or be trained for it. And the people who are so good at it, it's just it comes so naturally to them.
1: So this feels a bit like an unprecedented and impossible situation in governance anyway. Nobody quite knows what's gonna happen next week. You know, there isn't a clear answer. How would you deal with this as trying to get a message out? And does it matter? How a government deals with the way that they're putting out stuff to the press, do you think?
2: I mean, I think that it absolutely matters because right now, more than ever, media consumption has shot through the roof. So people are turning to the news in huge numbers, more than they ever have before, which is why it's also quite sad that, I mean, the media industry is facing a real crisis. It absolutely matters how governments communicate because that contributes to public trust. And right now, I mean, you want people to be trusting their government so that they um, adhere to any public health guidance that we, you know, that we must adhere to. So I think that's really important. I mean, I think it's probably, there's going to be a lot of time down the track to assess how everything's been managed, um, including the communication side of things. I think just being as open and transparent as possible. The WHO actually, I mean, we haven't touched on organisations like that, but I think they do a really good job of communicating to, like, obviously a global audience. Like, in the last week they've also started doing their press conferences, doing simultaneous interpretation in a number of languages. So I think they do an excellent job.
1: I I agree with you, but you and I are interested in this stuff and in this world. I mean, do you really think that's hitting the front page of the Telegraph? I
2: think that sometimes it has, and I think in particular, um, I think it's Dr Mike Ryan from the WHO again excellent natural communicator and I have seen you know a lot of his quotes making the front the front pages so they can I mean obviously most people aren't going to be tuning into the WHO press conference but the fact is a lot of journalists do and they're writing for mainstream media organizations all over the world so I think their messages are getting out there.
1: Is it possible to get right at the moment do you think?
2: No, not not completely. I think it's really, like, as you said, it's unprecedented. People are trying different things. We've never gone through this before. We've never gone through any crisis, especially in a digital age.
1: So, because I, I basically think the countries that you've mentioned are doing things well, by and large, have the trust of their populations. Maybe one of the big questions is, do we trust our government to deal with this well enough? And if you do, <laughs> then it's easier to trust the messaging that's coming out and it's easier to put messaging out to a population that believes you. If you're putting mm-hmm. messaging out to a population that by and large you know is unsure, you're fighting a separate battle on top of that, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And it'll be interesting to see in countries where um, as you said, there's a high level of trust and a popular leader and how they've responded and, and the levels of people sort of sticking to the official guidance. Because I agree with you, I think that's probably been an issue in, and it may be an issue as well in the UK. I mean, I'd love to see some studies on public trust in institutions in the UK over the last few years, how much that may have been eroded and whether that's then affected trust in government during the coronavirus. The fact is that you can watch the the daily press conferences and you can hear the messages that the, the ministers are putting out there, but then you hop on Twitter and you see um, e- epidemiologists or other experts who are disputing what's being said. So it's really quite hard to know who to believe sometimes.
1: Do you think this is going to change the way that governments interact with the
2: press? I'm going to be optimistic and I do hope that will change in some ways. I mean, I think at the very beginning of this in the UK, the the anonymous briefings were just really um, getting to a point that was quite irresponsible. So I hope that that sort of, you know, we see an end to that as much as possible, and particularly with important um, public issues such as this. I also think that there's a really, you know, there'll be a lot of studies on public health communications and the really simple messages about, you know, washing your hands while you're singing happy birthday twice, how effective those have been, and and different campaigns that governments have implemented, I think that there, there probably will be a bit to learn. Okay,
1: wonderful. so final question, just to try and be cheerier as a comms professional, what do you think is the most interesting method of communication, or one to watch? you know is it Instagram or Twitter or what what's the output that you're most interested by?
2: I mean, this sounds a bit old school now, but as I mentioned, the thing that I've been most impressed with during this has been Jacinda Ardern's Facebook Live sitting on her couch. I have seen a little bit of, I don't know whether it's been governments or just institutions and maybe government agencies using TikTok to put out sort of public health messages. And I would love to know the engagement rates on those because, I mean, personally, I just flick right through them because they're usually the least engaging. But then again, you know, if they're working and if young people are watching them and taking something away from them, then that's great.
1: We can be as sniffy as we want about what other people use, but it is about <laughs> what the audience wants to...
2: You need to go where the people are. And, I mean, I think that's another change, I guess, with the press conferences in the UK and something that I think was really good to see is that they're broadening it out to so beyond the usual media organisations that are included. So there was a little bit of a kerfuffle from some quarters when Lad Bible asked a question that's at the government true. press conference. You know, I'm not very familiar with Lad Bible, but I understand that they have a huge audience among young men in the UK. And so if you want to make sure that young men are hearing the message that, you know, guys, stay home, please don't hang out with your friends this weekend, then you need to talk to Lad Bible. And that's the right thing to be doing in this situation.
1: And people are sniffy about lots of things, but as you and I have had a chat about before. Oh magazine. Oprah's magazine
2: is uh one of the most read in the world exactly we need to be thinking outside of the box and going where people are where the people are and that's probably not where political journalists usually are
1: exactly we should stop being sniffy about that (laughs) so much that's really interesting and keep doing wonderful work for the chatham house press office thanks so much for talking to me about this and
2: thank you thanks agnes take
3: care
0: Okay, so today we're going to be talking about something completely different. We're going to be avoiding coronavirus and the ongoing pandemic and we're going to be looking at the situation in Myanmar with my colleague Sandra Smith. How are you doing, Sandra?
3: I'm doing very well, thank you. Finally settled into the working from home routine.
0: Yes. Yeah, whereabouts are you sheltering at the moment?
3: Sheltering in London, not too far from Chatham House. Close enough enough to the the madness. Ah,
0: beautiful. So Sandra is a programme manager in the Asia-Pacific programme, and she recently wrote an expert comment, which you can read now on the Chatham House website, called Justice for the Rohingya, Lessons from the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. So Sandra, I just thought if we could begin with a bit of background. Could you remind us all what's been happening in Myanmar recently, particularly regarding the Rohingya, and kind of what's the
3: background to this particular problem? Yeah, of course. So let's go back to 2017, which is basically when all of this started. The Rohingya are one of the many ethnic groups in Myanmar. They're actually the largest community of Muslims there, with the majority of them living in the Rakhine state. And there's been longstanding religious and ethnic persecution against them. This is because Myanmar is predominantly a Buddhist country, and the country denies the Rohingya citizenship. And this goes back to A long-standing issue of statelessness formalized in Myanmar citizenship laws. So there has been a gradual wave of Rohingya refugee from Myanmar to Bangladesh, but the latest exodus began in 2017 after a huge army crackdown. Violence broke out in August 2017 when the Rohingya militants attacked government forces at the border. And in response to this, Myanmar's armed forces were supported by a Buddhist militia. And they launched a huge clearing operation where they burned down villages, attacked and killed civilians. And this resulted in more than 700,000 Rohingyas fleeing from the Rakhine state in northern Myanmar to the Cox's Bazar region in southern Bangladesh. Now, the government has always claimed that they only targeted militias responsible for attacks on the security forces, and that the majority of those killed are actually terrorists but the crackdown has clearly resulted in evidence of crimes against humanity, uh, against the Rohingyas, including mass killings and rapes, and the UN fact-finding mission described the violence as having genocidal intent. Where we're at today is basically a situation where nearly one million Rohingyas live in numerous refugee camps in the Cox's Bazar region of Bangladesh, and they are dependent on humanitarian assistance for survival. This has become increasingly problematic, as even though there's an agreement in place for repatriation of refugees, none of them to date have returned, and Bangladesh has announced they would no longer accept fleeing refugees because of Myanmar's hollow promises in creating a conducive environment to facilitate repatriation. So the Rohingyas do not want to return unless there are guarantees over their safety, and perhaps guarantees to citizenship. So, And then there's the issue of even if they did consider returning, they might not be able to as villages have been burned down, properties have been destroyed or repurposed. And this is perhaps why justice is so important, because fewer are likely to seek to return to a place where those who perpetrated serious crimes against them or their families are still residing with impunity.
0: What was the international response to this crisis in 2017-18? So how did the international community respond to what was going on?
3: So there has been widespread pressure on Myanmar, and I think this has culminated largely in Gambia, the Gambia referring the case to the International Court of Justice. And this led to a ruling in January, an interim ruling imposing emergency provisional me- measures on Myanmar, instructing it to prevent genocidal violence against its Rohingya minority. And I guess this kind of shows how small states can play an important role in upholding international law and holding other states accountable. It also refocused attention because it has been two years since the atrocities and It's even now gotten to the point where Amal Clooney is going to represent the Maldives who are joining the Gambia in challenging Myanmar. So, if anything, there's been more of an international response to it than a domestic response, I would say.
0: How has the government in Myanmar responded to the crisis since in the kind of intervening period? How does it speak about it? Does it view it as something that was justified, or, or are there proceedings to try and bring the people who did this to justice?
3: So I guess the line has always been that they've done nothing wrong. They have only targeted militants responsible for attacks on security forces. So they've accepted that there have been crimes, but denying that there have been crimes of genocidal intent. And there has not been much criticism or call for accountability domestically because there's widespread support for government policy by the majority Buddhist population I suppose. And I guess that goes back to what we talked about earlier with the additional level of disenfranchisement, where international moral pressure is clear, but there's not much domestic incentive or demand for it. This is probably reflected very starkly in the fact that de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi has shied away from accountability and instead is defending her own government's actions before the International Court of Justice.
0: Before we go on to the comparison that you would like to make with a previous tribunal process, I just wondered if you could explain a little bit about the significance in this of the International Court of Justice. What powers does that institution have to actually bring people to justice? And what are the significance of the rulings that they've made in the past?
3: I guess this is slightly different in that it's an interim judgment and it's not a final judgment, which is still expected to take years. And while the interim decision is unanimous and it is binding, the ICJ has no way of actually enforcing these interim measures. Mm. And given, you know, the intensive scrutiny of Myanmar's behaviour to date and the lack of action that's taken, there's nothing to indicate that the response will be any different now. Myanmar has already responded defiantly to international criticism. So there's a real risk that they will fail to comply. But interestingly, the ICJ isn't the only mechanism that is pursuing justice and accountability. There is also a full investigation by the International Criminal Court into crimes that may have taken place. So the difference between these two mechanisms is that the ICJ rules on disputes between states, but the ICC has the authority to try the individuals who are accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And although Myanmar itself isn't a member of the ICC, It does have jurisdiction because Bangladesh is a member. So I guess even if the interim measures on Myanmar aren't binding at the moment, there is a tandem investigation done by the ICC looking to establish accountability against specific leaders who have perpetrated the crimes. So there are other routes to justice.
0: Why do these cases take so long? Why are these legal processes always, we're talking years often, to come to a final judgment? seems to be longer than a lot of domestic court cases. Is that wrong or are there particular reasons why it's so drawn
3: out? I think the main reason why it's so drawn out is that, so the Office of the Prosecutor has explained that it can take as long as it is needed to gather the required evidence. So that's obviously not a very specific time frame. And in theory, it could take a short amount of time, but it often requires such a a long time in order for sufficient impartial independence evidence to be collected that is enough to establish that specific individual's bear responsibility. So in that sense, the threshold may be slightly higher in international cases.
0: Okay, so to come to your expert comment that you wrote recently, the argument you were kind of making through this piece was that there are lessons that we can learn from a previous tribunal in Cambodia. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about the background to that particular crisis and how the tribunal was set up and the main aims and outcomes?
3: Yeah of course so the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia is more commonly known as the Khmer Rouge Tribunal and it was established to prosecute Khmer Rouge lead- leaders for alleged violations of international law and serious crimes perpetrated during the Cambodian genocide so this was the period in which the Khmer Rouge ruled from 1975 to 19. 19- Seventy-nine, where it was responsible for perhaps one of the worst mass killings of the 20th century that claimed the lives of up to 2 million people, which is nearly a quarter of Cambodia's population at the time. And the UN helped establish this hybrid mechanism more than three decades later. It it is notable to point out that the process was kick-started much earlier, but there was a long period of back and forth where the UN bargained with Cambodia in terms of the format of the tribunal. So initial uh, UN group of experts found that the trial should actually be held under UN control due to misgivings about the strength of Cambodia's judicial system. But in the end, there a compromise was reached establishing a hybrid body consisting of parallel international and Cambodian judges. And like I said, there are many lessons to be learned from it, but it is worth noting that since 2009, only three Khmer Rouge leaders have ever been sentenced. So it I don't know if this speaks to the perhaps deadlocked or tricky hybrid process where national bodies retain such a large amount of decision-making power.
0: And so what would you say beyond that are the key kind of lessons that we should be drawing from this particular tribunal?
3: So there are lots of dynamics at play here, but I think I can identify three key lessons that we can take that are particularly applicable to the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar. The first being that the state itself must have political will and a desire to pursue accountability. So as I mentioned, in the case of Cambodia, it was the government itself who requested assistance for the UN and who continued to spearhead the need for domestic involvement. Arguably, this was so that they could circumscribe the search for justice, and it was a guise in order to do so. And it's also worth noting that the Prime Minister of Cambodia, Hun Sen, initially chose to do business with former leaders until it became advantageous to embrace the policy of putting them on trial Mm -hmm. and applying this directly to Myanmar. There doesn't seem to be any domestic advantage to doing so at the moment. There is broad public support from the Buddhist majority of the anti-Rohingya campaign. So I guess the lesson is almost that while international moral pressure is clear, it can't just be imposed on a state that has no desire to pursue justice when there's no interest or widespread support in accountability. The second lesson which I tried to unpack in the expert comment was the need for safeguards against local political interference. And this was arguably the whole reason why Cambodia went to the UN in the first place because it had a weak judicial system, and although it was designed as a national court with international participation, and there was an agreement to act in accordance with international standards of justice and impartiality, there weren't really any safeguards in place to prevent against the serious deficiencies of the Cambodian judicial system, so close alliances between judges and the ruling party high levels of corruption. These effectively gave way to the government's veto power and allowed it to retain the ability to block further prosecutions and also prevent witnesses from being called. I don't know if this is arguably less relevant to Myanmar as it doesn't look like there is going to be a domestic or hybrid process given the popular support for current policies. And thirdly, it does send a clear signal that there needs to be a stance against the culture of impunity within the region. So many say that the Khmer Rouge tribunal was conceived as a showcase for international standards of justice. And this was because Cambodia at the time was notorious for incidents where powerful people flouted the law. And the idea was that by punishing and trying Khmer Rouge leaders, it would send a clear signal that lesser violations would also not be tolerated in the same way. Whether or not this is work in practice and whether the Cambodian judicial system retains a certain amount of independence is perhaps unclear, but the same tone is echoed in Myanmar in that its special rapporteur on the situation of human rights, the UN in Myanmar, has urged domestic authorities to embrace democracy and to strengthen the judicial system and judicial independence, because this would remove barriers to accountability and Based on her assessment, it's clear that these domestic institutions are currently not independent enough to pursue accountability. So ultimately, it stands as proof that in a region where justice processes haven't gone anywhere and where international recourse is quite challenging Mm -hmm. with the low ratification of the ICC and then ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations policy of non-interference blocks much constructive discussion on the Rohingya's ongoing statelessness. It is ultimately symbolic, as an example, against impunity within the region. And overall, I guess the Cambodian example shows that a legalistic approach will not be successful unless it's supported by wider measures and safeguards.
0: And as you've mentioned partly in that answer there, you don't sound particularly optimistic that those safeguards are necessarily likely to be present in the short term, at least in Myanmar itself?
3: It doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem like the domestic institutions are where they need to be. Whether or not that is significant is up for debate, in that there is no demand for a domestic process anyway. So, arguably, it would be better for international institutions that may have jurisdiction over these crimes, have a strengthened capacity. And to this end, actually, the UN Human Rights Council recently, at the end of last year, established an independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar. So it's it's not the conventional tribunal in the same way that was created for Yugoslavia or Rwanda but the mechanism was mandated to collect and preserve evidence as well as to prepare files to facilitate future cases, whether these are before national, regional, or international courts or tribunals, including crimes that are to be committed in the future. So I guess the idea is strengthening and preserving evidence and ensuring that there's an international mechanism that is watching as things unfold.
0: So just coming towards the end now, because um, I think you've given us a really comprehensive overview of this, I just wondered if you could talk to us a bit about what the timeline for the future of, of this justice process might be. Because obviously, as, as you mentioned earlier, we're now already three years on from the initial atrocities in, in themselves. The situation for the refugees in Bangladesh is still very much unresolved. They're basically stateless. But what can we expect over the next sort of, you know, 12 months or, or over the next few years to happen? Is something like the ongoing pandemic that we're seeing, is that likely to interfere with this process? Is that going to lead to delays? Is there any sort of hope in the short term for this situation to improve?
3: Well, it's interesting that you brought up the pandemic coronavirus, actually, because I think that is largely going to shift the focus from justice and accountability in the sense of prosecution more to managing the humanitarian refugee crisis in Bangladesh. And I know this is meant to be the segment of this episode that avoids COVID-19 and looks at other issues. You did so
0: well. 20 minutes.
3: (laughs) 20 minutes. Well, unfortunately, it's so pervasive that it also plays into the Rohingya conflict. And actually, just last week, Bangladesh rescued 400 Rohingyas in the Bay of Bengal. And they were, they spent almost two months adrift because they were refused entry into Malaysia. And many on board died and survivors are severely dehydrated and malnourished. And this goes... Back to the whole idea of countries using coronavirus as an excuse or as a guide to reject refugees. So Malaysia itself confirmed that it had denied entry to actually another boat last week to prevent the further spread of coronavirus within the country, mm. which remains under lockdown. And we see the same phenomenon operating in Europe as the crisis has put a halt on search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean because European countries are not allowing boats carrying migrants to disembark. I guess coronavirus has become a convenient pretext for violating the principle of non-refoulement, which obliges states to prevent the return of anyone to a territory where they would be at risk of serious human rights violations
0: well i hope we can get you on in the future to follow up on on the developments and we'll see where this leads sandra Smith, thank you so much for joining us today
3: thanks ben take care
0: and you can read sandra's expert comment on the chatham house website now and there's a link in the show notes
1: was so interesting thank you thanks to everyone for listening and just a reminder that we are now weekly
0: we are indeed very exciting i get to talk to you every week i get to bother you every week about who we're going to talk to for the pod what we're going to talk about in the intro all of that stuff i'm sure you're thrilled agnes
1: I just like to have a call from you, Ben. So, i really, I really appreciate it, and an update on your beard growth. So, yes, but Ben, where can we get more information from Chatham House on what is going on in the world at the moment?
0: Yes, so obviously we're hoping that you're enjoying Undercurrents continuing to cover things that are not coronavirus related. But if you feel that you actually would like to know more about the ongoing pandemic. And also the implications, not just for the economy, but also for society and for healthcare systems and for the environment uh, and security around the world. Then Chatham House has all of that analysis on our website. We have a weekly webinar briefing that people can join with David Heyman, who used to be an executive director at the World Health Organization. And we have content coming out of our ears from all of the different research programmes um, on every different aspect of this crisis. It's kind of your one-stop shop.
1: Absolutely. One-stop. And even uh, niche things that you might not think about. But how is Georgia talking about coronavirus? Like, every department is looking at this and it's all very interesting stuff. So you should go to But in the meantime...
0: I'm Ben Horton.
1: I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.